2: This is the Roy Green Show
1: podcast.
0: I want to start off with the story out of uh, southern Ontario. That really is, it's a story that's grabbing the attention of people right across this country. Because it has to do with house prices. And the housing market in Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe, which includes, of course, Hamilton and then down toward Niagara, continues to experience explosive price increases. New available detached homes in Toronto are an average of $1 million in March of this year. That's an increase of $716,711 over last year. The Wynn government has introduced the 15% non-resident foreign buyer tax, and they have a whole suite of of housing initiatives that they're undertaking. And I was thinking uh, how much of a relief that is, given the fact that the premier also was in charge of... uh, of hydro and electricity prices, and we know how well that turned out. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to housing. I want to ask you in a few minutes about whether you're in the market for a home now, and particularly if you're in the Toronto or southern Ontario area, and what it is that you're encountering. Because people are going in, from what I understand, you go and you look at a house, and immediately you're told, and this has happened previously, you know, in fairly contemporary history, immediately you're told... There are other people who are bidding on this house, and they're way over already what the asking price is. So you now are involved in a lottery. And what's that like if you're a buyer? Also, if you're a seller, you know, if you suddenly have a piece of property, if you have a home that a couple of years ago you bought for two hundred and fifty dollars or $300,000, and today they're telling you it's worth a million, a million and a half, what do you do? I know a lot of people say, well, I can't afford to sell it because if I, afford, if I sell it, I won't be able to afford to buy something like it. But if you sell it, and you downsize, providing you can find something, there's money that will go into your bank account. There are a lot of questions, a lot of issues that have to be dealt with and are being dealt with. And um, with me on the show is Jason Mercer. He's a market analyst for the Toronto Real Estate Board. Jason, thank you for taking the time uh, on a Saturday. Where do you find time these days?
1: Well, I, you know, I, it's certainly been a, a busy past 12 months when you're looking at the uh, the real estate market. I mean, if you look at... Uh, you know, from July 25th onwards, when the B.C. government brought in their uh, foreign buyers tax uh, connected to the greater Vancouver area uh, market, obviously, you know, the the, the next sort of leap um, in, in terms of uh, the housing market was thinking about, well, um, you know, where do we stand with regard to foreign buyers in the greater Toronto area? And and, and should we expect to see a, a similar move? And, and certainly now going on a year later, that was one of the uh, um, you know, policy initiatives on the part of the uh, of the province that, that came into or, or, or was announced uh, late last week.
0: The Premier said at the time that the 15% foreign buyers tax went into effect in Vancouver. The Premier of Ontario said, if I recall correctly, that she would not get engaged in a similar action because she didn't see a parallel between what was going on in Vancouver and what was happening in Toronto. Now, because of what's happening in Toronto, she's taken that step. How do the realtors feel about a 15% foreign buyers tax? On properties in the city of Toronto? Well
1: I think one of the things that you know we've been saying since uh, um, the the uh, the summer announcement from from BC is that you know we feel any policy initiative that's uh, that's pointed at the uh, at the housing market ought to be you know or have a, a solid foundation on empirical evidence and, and and when people were initially asking about you know the level of foreign buying activity in the GTA initially there was no good uh, 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 numbers that, 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 uh, that sort of backed it up one way or the other. And so one of the things that, uh, that Treb did uh, uh, late in 2016 was uh, hire Ipsos to undertake a, uh, a survey of our membership. So essentially asking if you acted on behalf of a buyer over the last 12 months, what share of those deals that you're involved in involved, uh, involved a foreign buyer and on top of that, you know, where you had deals and involved a foreign buyer, you know, what was their purpose for uh, for purchasing uh, that home? And the results are actually quite interesting. I mean, number one, the, the, the share of overall foreign buying activity for the greater Toronto area came in at just shy of 5%, so 4.9%. But then when you broke down, you know, why um, many of these buyers were purchasing a home, most of them were looking at it either for, for residents for themselves to live in or another family member to live in or to purchase it as an investment to rent out to tenants. And you know, obviously when we're uh, uh, facing pretty tight rental market conditions, as well as in the, in the greater Toronto area then that, that gets to the supply issue on that front also.
0: And it's not just Toronto because the tentacles are spreading across say, in, in Southern Ontario. They start in Peterborough, I believe, and, and go to Niagara, which is sort of a greater Toronto area. Um, I don't know if that's exactly how it's defined, but I, I believe it's sort of a greater Toronto area, GT area. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're in uh, in Toronto or Hamilton or Burlington or heading down toward Niagara, the same sort of situation is developing where the properties, because people are moving to get something, maybe if they sell a house in Toronto, buy something a little less expensive uh, 30, 40 miles away, which, of course, is then driving the price up in those communities. And we already have, I think, a national price average on homes at half a million dollars. Where's this going? You're the analyst. How do you analyze this?
1: Well, it's true. I mean, if you look back sort of coming out of the recession, uh, 2010 2011 you know we we're starting to see uh, um, obviously a, a, a resurgence in demand for ownership housing um, but one of the things we we're also seeing is, 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 is we weren't seeing a resurgence in, in, in listing so even as we start to see a turnaround um, in price growth um, generally speaking that'll prompt people to list their homes because they want to take advantage of equity gains and what-have-you and either you know take advantage of some of that money by say downsizing or maybe they want to use that equity to, to move up in the market but whatever the case what generally would happen in that sort of phase of the housing cycle wasn't and really up until the last couple of months, uh, the number of new listings had been flat to down, but that was up against, you know, a couple of consecutive years of of record sales. And so you started to see an acceleration in price growth. And certainly, you know, whereas that started sort of in the city of Toronto and then moved out to the, the GTA regions. And now we're seeing, you know, if you're looking at the greater golden horseshoe, so you're right from from St. Catharines you know, right up through you know, Kitchener-Waterloo, Guelph area, through into Barrie, and then back down into the eastern end of uh, Durham region. Um, you know, all of these parts of the market or, or geographies in the marketplace have gotten tighter and tighter to the point where most of those areas um, that you mentioned are now experiencing you know double-digit price growth, especially for low-rise home types, single semis, and townhomes.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.
0: Jason Mercer market analyst Toronto Real Estate Board is with me. Jason is there any way to project what's going to happen to home prices in uh, in the next year if if it's gone up 33% march over uh, year over year march to march uh, and and higher I believe in some home designations uh, can you look ahead to 2018 and have any sense of where home prices will be?
1: you know we do, we do we don't have an official forecast now for now for 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 2018 but certainly you know right now uh, when you look at you know how tight market conditions are you got about a month's worth of inventory you know GTA wide so what i mean by that is is that if you, if you look at the active listings that we had Um, at the end of uh, uh, March and said, well, if if we saw on average, of sort of the same monthly level of sales we've seen over the past year, it would only take a month's time to deplete all those listings. I mean, that's why we're seeing the the strong and accelerating pace of price growth uh, um, that we've seen. And so if that scenario were to carry forward, then, you know, in all likelihood, we continue to see that same pace of price growth. But it's important to note um, that over the last couple of months we have started to see um, a resurgence in, in in new listings and and so if that trend were to keep up, um, you know chances are you could see more balance come into the market and you could see a moderation in the pace of price growth. Um, but the issue is, is that it does take some time to 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 unwind things because you know it's been so tight out there right now you got a lot of households that would purchase a home if they could find one that meets their needs. the issue is there's been so much competition between buyers up against you know a very constrained supply, um, that you'd still have a lot of these households that were you know making purchases as you saw more listings come online. So you probably need to you know see a year or so of uh, of, uh, uh, of of time where you're seeing the growth in new listings outstripping growth in sales. Now it looks like we're starting to see that, and so if that were to be sustained. Um, you can see uh, some
0: moderation on the price front moving forward. What do you advise people who really have an economic interest in the value of their home, economic interest in the sense that they, if they can make a, a good profit selling a home now, an amount of money that they couldn't make any other way, and maybe if, you know, if the bubble bursts or the bubble deflates somewhat over the next few years, they will lose a significant portion of the money they can make on the 22nd of April of 2017. What do you advise those people?
1: I mean, you know, if you look at it, right, and everyone's situation is always different. So I always yeah. stop short of sort of making a uh, or giving out sort of blanket advice. But I mean, certainly, um, you know, and, and as I said, I mean, even if we see more supply come into the market over the next year or so, um, you know, things are so tight right now that you know, even with a little bit more choice between buyers, I mean, you know, in all likelihood, we're going to continue to see price to a, certainly through 2017. Um, and, and as we move into uh, into 2018 as well, it may not be quite at the pace that we're seeing, you know, through the first quarter of this year. Where we're seeing say 20, 30 percent price growth, but you know, certainly price growth above the rate of inflation, you know, over the next uh, a year and a half is, is, is certainly you know still well on
0: the cards. Is the Toronto market today comparable with Vancouver when the Clark government introduced their 15 percent foreign speculation tax?
1: Um, well, when you look at uh, you know, certainly we're seeing very strong rates of price growth um and, and, and there we're seeing similar rates uh in vancouver especially for you know single family detached type homes but um the one thing is is that you know the price level um especially when you're looking at it on average across uh, a home types still quite a bit lower than what we saw in vancouver with a similar level of income so from you know an affordability perspective you know looking at you know the majority of people purchase a home through the use of a mortgage and so the share of income going towards mortgage principal and interest, property taxes, and utilities uh, was still lower than than what
0: we're seeing in, uh, in in Vancouver. Jason, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
1: You're very welcome. Have a nice weekend.
0: And you too. Uh, there is Jason Mercer, market analyst for the Toronto Real Estate Board. 1-800-263-2428 is my number. 1-800-263-2428. Um, are you in the market to buy a house? Or are you selling a home? Or are you somebody who just bought recently or sold a home recently? Uh, What's the process like if you're trying to buy? Do you have to come up with extra money immediately? Do you have to go beyond the list price immediately just to get a shot at a house? 800-263-2428. And if you're selling, what's the process like for you? I mean, it must be good. You're just sitting back and waiting for the offers to pour in. But then where are you going to move to? 800-263-2428. If you're trying to buy a house in southern Ontario, what's it like for you? What's the process like? If you're selling, what's that like for you? And um, how quickly was your, your home sold? And how much more than asking price... Are the buyers going to have to offer 800-263-2428? And if you're having rent increase issues, same number, 800-263-2428. What's happening with rents? And we'll talk condos, too. Give me a call. We'll come back.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Well, we're uh, headed toward the leadership vote for the Conservative Party of Canada. And then, of course, whoever leads the Conservative Party will lead them into the 2019 federal election, challenging Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government and whoever the NDP selects as their leader. Now, we've talked to a number of the aspirants for the leadership of the Conservative Party last weekend. Kevin O'Leary was our guest, has been on the show a number of times. But we have the opportunity to talk today to, uh, if there are two frontrunners, one is Maxime Bernier and the other is Kevin O'Leary, and Maxime Bernier joins us on The Roy Green Show, on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Bernier, thank you for taking the time.
3: Thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Let me uh, start right away. Let's not make a connection to what I just mentioned about my friend who will be on the show with us tomorrow. We have the issue at our borders, at the Canadian border, U.S.-Canada border, where we have people, migrants, crossing into Canada from the United States. We have a safe third country agreement with the United States, But nevertheless, people are coming in, and it doesn't seem as though the federal government of Mr. Trudeau has any idea of what to do. If you were prime minister of this country today, what would you be doing about the issue at the border?
3: Yes, first, uh, it is a shame that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau doesn't want to do anything about that. Uh, It is uh, not good for the integrity of our borders and the integrity of our immigration system. So what I will do... I will, first of all, uh, sit with President Trump and fix that loophole in the uh, safe third country agreement, as you just said. Uh, people are able to cross the country in a non-official point of uh, entry in Canada. And when they are doing that, they are not going back to, their, uh, to the U.S. or to their uh, safe third country. So we must fix that. Uh, and uh, what I will do right now, I will give more resources to the RCMP to be sure that uh, they are patrolling our border.
0: Would you be uh, inclined to want to turn people back, to send them back to the United States, or are we tied into by the Charter, are we tied into them having an IRB hearing once they get into Canada?
3: No, we can't do that. You know, we we have the possibility to do it, but uh, if we want to do it, there's uh, two solutions. So to have uh, an official point of entry where they are entering right now and it is not an official point of entry. So like that, we will respect the agreement and they will go back in Canada. So we can have two official point of entry where they are entering in Canada right now. So that will solve the problem in a short term. And after that, uh, uh, being sure to have that discussion to fix that loophole and saying in that agreement that if you cross the country, Anywhere in Canada, and you're coming from a U.S. or a, or a third safe country, you're not a refugee, and you have to go back to your country. Yeah,
0: that absolutely <laughs> makes sense. President Trump has turned his attention on Canada and our trade arrangements with the United States, which was entirely predictable. Uh, he sees, he says, inequity in our dairy products, our steel, energy, <laughs> and lumber, softwood lumber, and he wants to get uh, to the negotiating table with Canada very, very quickly, he said. The president argues that Wisconsin farmers are out of work because of the Canadian dairy supply management system. You're not a supporter of the supply management system, and you've said you would change it because it operates like a cartel. You're the only leadership candidate for the Conservative Party who's taken that approach. Tell us why.
3: Absolutely, and I'm proud to be the only one uh, candidate. And the only one also member of Parliament in Ottawa, who is speaking for uh, the Canadian consumers. And I'm proud of that. And I will do that because we need, the uh, Canadian need, to pay half the price for these products. We are thinking about milk, uh, dairy, and eggs pro- egg products. So what I will do, I was, uh, when President Trump said last week that, uh, you know, we, uh, it is not fair because the dairy producer in Wisconsin, they cannot... Uh, export and sell their milk in Canada. I think he is right about that. It is not fair for all the dairy producers in Canada because they cannot sell their milk in the U.S. So let's abolish that system. And the most important, it is not fair for the Canadian consumers because they, for each family in Canada, they are paying $500 every year to keep that system. So that's why I want to abolish that. But at the same time, I'm saying to the President Trump, you know, you want to have a free trade and fair free trade with Canada. It is not fair what you want to do for our softwood lumber producers because you want to impose a 25 percent tariff on softwood lumber coming from Canada going to the U.S. It is not fair for the Americans in the U.S. who want to build a house. They will have to pay a thousand dollars more for a new house in the US. So let's have discussion that would be fair for everybody, and having discussion with more free trade, not more protectionism.
2: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. I'm
0: Maxime Bernier, who is one of the front runners for the Conservative Party leadership um i always liked you mr bernier when you were a a minister in uh, mr harper's government i always felt like you spoke your mind i felt like you had conservative values tell me why it is i'm going to come back to the question i asked a minute ago but tell me why it is that why should people vote for you Why should conservatives choose you to be their leader and not kevin o'leary and not any of the other candidates why you
3: Well, first of all because i won't do any compromise with our conservative principles the free market principles that's why we, will, we need to have a smaller government in Ottawa, well, a government that will give more freedom to Canadians, and with that, we'll have more prosperity. But also, to be able to beat Justin Trudeau in 2019, we need to have a bold, conservative program, and that's what I'm offering to our members and to Canadians. But also, we need to win seats in Quebec if we want to be able to be back in government. And I can, I can because you know, I'm able to speak to Quebecers and to all Canadians. And if, uh, if uh, uh, Brian Maroney was able to have 58 seats in Quebec in 1984, I think I can bring 40 seats in Quebec, and that will be easier for us after that to be back in government because I can speak to Quebecers, and I'm saying the same thing in English and in French, and people appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, you've already brought seats to the Conservative uh, Party and the Conservative government in the past in the province of Quebec. If Let's come back to Donald Trump. If you're the prime minister of this country, and, and and we're speculating now, but that's all we can do. You're the prime minister of Canada. Donald Trump brings up the issue of dairy. You've already told us that you would do away with the supply management system. But he also talks about Canadian softwood lumber being a, an unfair advantage. It's being dumped on the United States, he says. He's not happy about energy exports. Uh, and, and he's talking about a tariff on steel. So you sit down with Donald Trump. You've got those items on the table what are you saying to him? Where, where, do, where are you willing to compromise? What are you not willing to compromise?
3: So what I will do, first of all, to be able to have an agreement with him, like I said, we will abolish the cartel of supply management in dairy, poultry, and eggs products for Canadian consumers, but also for the American producers. They will be able to export these products. That's important because President Trump is asking for that. After that, I will tell him, you know, I don't want you to impose any tariff on, 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 uh, on softwood lumber and other products because if you're doing that, we must have a fair agreement that is fair for both, both countries. And that's not fair to impose tariffs. That's not fair that here in Canada we are, we are closing our border for your products in the U.S. So I'll have that fair discussion with him, that strong discussion with him. That's the only way to be sure that we'll have more freedom and and that would, to be sure, to have an agreement that will be in our interest and in the interest also of the Americans.
0: Carbon tax. Mr. Trudeau has declared that Canada will have a national carbon tax. He's giving the provinces the option to choose their own way, but if the provinces don't do it, then he's going to impose it. You know that he had quite an engagement with uh, Mr. Brad Wall, the Premier of Saskatchewan, who was a guest on this program, and the Premier told us that the day after the Prime Minister got up in Parliament and said that there would be a national carbon tax. At the same time, his uh, his natural or his environment minister was meeting with provincial environment ministers and surprised her. He got up and he said there's going to be a national carbon tax. The very next day, Premier Wall asked Prime Minister Trudeau, have you done an economic impact study of a carbon tax? And Trudeau said, no, we haven't. So a fundamental change to Canadian taxation, No, uh, no economic impact test done. What about a carbon tax in a Maxime Bernier administration?
3: We won't have any carbon tax. I don't believe in taxes. I don't believe in a carbon tax. It would be bad for the economy, and it would hurt the economy. We won't be competitive because, as you know, in the U.S., they don't impose a carbon tax over there. And our economy must be competitive with the U.S. economy because our entrepreneurs here are exporting 75% of their products in the U.S., so no carbon tax under Maxime Bernier. And if we have one, I will repeal that as soon as possible.
0: Justin Trudeau delivered at least the promise of $2.6 billion to the United Nations. He said Canada is back. Delivered $2.6 billion, or the promise of $2.6 billion, to the United Nations Climate Pact. What do you do?
3: Uh, first of all, you know, in that $2.6 billion, he wants to give $2.3 billion to African countries to fight climate change. I won't do that. I will take that money to help all people here in Canada. So I don't believe in foreign aid. I believe in foreign humanitarian aid. You know, I've never seen a country be- becoming richer because of foreign aid. If you if you want, the country can improve their economy by adopting the free market, by adopting the rule of law, by uh, by also adopting the uh, uh, property rights. So. That's must, they, must, they must do that. It is not our role to develop road in, in Africa to, uh, to send our money in Africa to fight climate change. So what I will do, I will use that money to help our people here in Canada.
0: Justin Trudeau told the New York Times that Canada has no common denominator, that there's no real Canadian identity, and that Canada is the world's first post-nation state. What do you say to him?
3: I say he's absolutely wrong about that. You know, there are Canadian values, and the fundamental Canadian values are the rule of law, the equality between men and women, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. That's why people are coming to our country, and so we must <laughs> we must be proud of that. So, yes, we are Canadians, and we must be proud, and I know that Canadians are proud of that. I don't agree with Justin Trudeau that there's no Canadian values here in this country.
0: You've said Canadian values three times, and I believe in Canadian values. I believe that that really is what sustains us in this country. Now, Australia is introducing uh, an Australian values test for all its citizenship applicants. Uh, It's been suggested that Canada do the same thing. One of your opponents, Dr. Kelly Leach, has said Canadian values test for anybody moving to Canada or even visiting Canada. Would you support a Canadian values test for citizenship applicants?
3: No, I won't, because we don't need to have that. We have a way to select our immigrants. And, you know, we have a point system in Canada and that's working very well. We don't have the same challenges that they're having in Europe because of that. This country has been built by Canadians, by immigrants, and we must be proud of that. And we have that system for the last 40 years and it's working. So if you speak French, you have a little point. If you speak English, you have more points. We have a system that is working. What I want to do, I want people who want to come to Canada, they must be motivated to succeed, not motivated to receive. And that's the way that our immigration system is working right now. And I want to give maybe more resources to our uh, securities agency to be sure to do a full background checks on new immigrants and I want to give more resources to the Department of Immigration. If they need to do, to do more face-to-face interview, they must be able to do that. But I don't want to do like Kelly Leach. Every person that wants to come to Canada as a visitor or as an immigrant, she's saying that these people must have a face-to-face interview. That would That would be costly, and we don't need that. But I want that the... Uh, official immigration official agent on the ground I want him to be able to do a face-to-face interview with a new Canadian if he needs to do, to do that
0: okay I have 30 seconds Mr. Bernier are you are you watching what's going on uh, clearly you're watching what's going on in Europe Would you be prepared if France and Germany elect new and nationalist governments and the UK of course is voting in a few weeks as well.
3: Do you? What is the question?
0: If they, if if if, for example, Marine Le Pen were to win in France, would you yes. be would you be prepared for that?
3: Well, you know, it's the decision of the people in this country. I want their fear, but oh. yes, I, as the as the prime minister of this country, I would work with the the the, the, the new president of France elected, okay. and that, that that's my role. Okay. So that's the decision, and I don't want, I don't want to interfere in inter, internal affairs in other countries. All right, Mr. Bernie.
0: We're, we're out of we're out of time, but I thank you so much for spending the time with us.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. Have a nice afternoon. Thank, thank you. You much. too.
0: Maxime Bernier.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Bill O'Reilly's lawyer states there is irrefutable evidence of a political smear campaign against his client, which forced O'Reilly out of his Fox News Channel 8 p.m. slot, and his reported $25 million annual salary. Lisa Bloom is the daughter of Gloria Allred. She's uh, the lawyer for several of the women who accuse O'Reilly of sexual harassment. And joining us is Gloria Allred, um, one of the, um, certainly in you know, the United States and I think beyond the United States, human rights and women ri- women's rights lawyers. Her book is Fight Back and Win. Ms. Allred, well, you and I talk about sexual harassment, sexual assault by stars, well-known people, well-known men, on far too regular a basis. Are we, do we have a situation going on here where we have, um, where it's a generational thing or is it a power thing? Is it an environment thing? I'm in this environment. I can do anything I want. What's going on? What, how, do you, how do you define this?
4: Well, I would define it as, uh, yes, in your words, a power thing, an abuse of power uh, by those who are in power against those who have little or no power. And in terms of the environment that you mentioned, Roy, of course, it's the workplace, and it's the employer who has control or should be monitoring the workplace to make sure that it is safe for the workers there. And I would say, particularly women, because women are, frankly, much more likely to be sexually harassed than men, although men also have a right to be able to do their jobs without being sexually harassed. And we have, over the 41 years that I've been practicing law, been the leader in sexual harassment uh, cases in the United States. Uh, and we've, we've won hundreds of millions of dollars in reference for victims of sexual harassment, and they have a right to be compensated if uh, they are able to prove that, in fact, they have been sexually harassed or retaliated against because they protested sexual harassment.
0: You've said that Bill O'Reilly has only himself to blame. Uh, What are you saying to Bill O'Reilly?
4: Well, you know, all I can say is, I mean, his attorney has made a statement that somehow this is a political smear or... You know what? You know the claims are unfounded. Well, all I can say is, you know, if if anyone who was accused of sexual harassment would like to be able to have the case go to trial and have a jury decide whether or not the accuser is in fact, you know, should prevail, does have evidence uh, sufficient under the law to prove sexual harassment, then of course he. You know, any accused would have the right to have that case tried in a court of law and is not required, you know, to make any kind of settlement, which which would cause there not to be a case in a court of law. So all I can say is this allegation is made by his attorneys. Let's see the evidence to support the allegation. Anyone could throw out a theory, but is there going to be evidence to support that theory I think that there is no evidence to support the theory that this was political. And I say, when they say the claims are unfounded, which claims are they talking about? Who are they talking about? What is their evidence to support the allegation that claims are unfounded?
0: Now, what does $13 million in out-of-court settlements represent? Sounds like big money. So does $13 million paid to five women imply the harassment was specific and long-ongoing more than complimenting on appearance once or twice?
4: You know, all I can say is that, you know, in general, as to most employers, and in general as to most perpetrators, where there is a significant amount paid, that usually indicates that there was evidence presented to the employer or to the accused such that they felt that the risk was less to to settle it uh, than to litigate it and potentially have such evidence presented to a jury. That's their assessment. They could be right, they could be wrong, but that's the assessment. If, in fact, it's true that that's the amount of money that was paid... That's not what we call nuisance value. Nuisance value is if an employer decides to resolve a matter for $5,000 or $10,000, you know, then they have a strong argument that they just want to get rid of it and not be bothered and not incur the cost of litigation. Where there are substantial, you know, amounts paid by employers and and you know, certainly anything, you know, we're talking if if numbers are in the millions, there's a substantial amount then obviously the employer has decided that it's not an acceptable risk to take to continue to litigate the case. But whatever they, you know, we'll never know the reasons. We'll never know if, in fact, that's the correct amount. All we can say is, you know, we all have to pay attention if, in fact, uh, an employer pays those numbers. And let's talk about the victims because, you know, people, you know, will name perpetrators, but victims matter, too. And, in fact, victims to me matter the most because we represent victims. And, you know, sometimes if, if, if people are sexually harassed in a job, they're being denied their right to equal employment opportunity. They can't enjoy that right. It's a form of sex discrimination to be sexually harassed. And they're placed in a no-win situation. And I've had, you know, people contact me, victims, and they don't want to go public, but they want me to know what's going on. They want to know what rights, if any, they have. And, um, you know, it's it, it's a no-win situation from the start, because if they say yes and agree to go along with sexual advances, then, you know, sometimes the perpetrator will get tired of them and not want to deal with them anymore in the workplace and make sure they're fired. Uh, if they don't go along with it, then the perpetrator may go into ego shock and also ultimately want them to be fired uh, or, you know, demoted or suffer some other kind of, you know, de- de- denigration of their employment opportunity. So it, it's not a good thing to have in the workplace, and any per- any employer must be sure that it's not a hostile workplace and that it's a safe workplace free of sexual harassment.
0: You know, it would seem, I think, logical to assume that Fox Senior Management if they didn't know what was going on, they had a good idea of what was going on. They had the Roger Ailes issue, just a couple of months ago. Bill O'Reilly has a bit of a reputation, from what I understand, not being particularly popular with his, with his co-workers, and uh, and and if in fact Fox did pay part of that, spoken about thirteen million dollars, then they knew what was going on. Then they they, they knew what was going on, and they were paying. I got to be careful what I say, but they were paying to, to for, for silence. Um. And if Bill O'Reilly is fired, that sends a strong message to others as well. If it can happen to Bill O'Reilly, it can happen to anybody. Um, but would you? Would, is it your sense that Fox management had to have an idea of what was going on, and it was a return on investment issue? As long as as long as we don't lose money, we'll keep keep O'Reilly. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about it.
4: Well, all I can say is that apparently there's also a criminal investigation going on. Uh, in reference to you know in reference to fox and 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 all i can say is uh, you know i think we need to await that investigation and the results of that but I, I will say at at some point and just speaking in general uh employers are going to be aware of allegations of sexual harassment and if there are serial allegations multiple allegations then I would say for most employers, ultimately, there's not only going to be discipline of the accused if they find sufficient evidence to support that discipline, but at some point, the employee is no longer going to be working with the corporation because there's too much risk involved for the corporation. But it's it's an interesting calculus that employers have to do. You know, weighing the wrong, weighing the value of the accused, Uh, weighing the evidence, weighing the brand, uh, the possible damage to the brand. Uh, And so there are a lot of, of, you know, calculations that go into the ultimate result.
0: Final question for you. When a woman accepts an out-of-court settlement from a man who is sexually harassing her, is she empowering that man to continue making him confident that money will buy silence?
4: Well, you know... I have done literally thousands of confidential settlements, you know, with all kinds of employers. And, you know, all of course, you know, employers often want to buy peace, and they don't want to have it discussed any more than it has been discussed. Uh, from the victim's point of view, sometimes victims, they don't want their name out there. They don't want to have to go through a trial. They don't want to have the risks they don't want to, they just want to get their therapy or whatever you know whatever compensation they can get for the pain and suffering they've endured and potentially the economic loss that they've endured and they want to go on with their life so you know sometimes they're not adverse to confidential settlements of victims or sometimes they wish they could tell their story and be able to get the compensation that they deserve to have but you know if there's significant compensation paid that often is a message not only to the corporation, but also to the perpetrator of the wrong, that, you know, there's a cost involved in sexual harassment, and the cost should not be borne by the victim. It should be borne by the perpetrator and the corporation that allows it.
0: I do have one more question for you. Um, There will will be people, there will be fans of Bill O'Reilly, as there were fans of Bill Cosby, and still are fans of Bill Cosby, who will say, no, 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 no. These are just people trying to take advantage of him, which is essentially what O'Reilly said, is if you're powerful and wealthy, people will try to take advantage of you. That's why they're picking on me. Essentially uh, the same argument that Cosby made from time to time. What do you say to the people who will continue to insist that can't possibly have done it, he's just being taken advantage of, I believe O'Reilly? You
4: know, I think they're going to have to draw their own conclusions in the court of public opinion. But having said that, a very successful other show host at Fox News is Sean Hannity. Right. And uh there have been no public allegations of sexual harassment uh that I know of that have been leveled against Sean Hannity. Right. So that's something everybody needs to take into account. And
0: there is some well. talk about some other Fox hosts, male Fox hosts who may also be investigated for you sexual know, harassment.
4: I don't know who was being investigated for what, but you know, we'll we'll have to see. I think that, you know, all employers just better be vigilant. All because employers. women are going to not be silent anymore. They're empowered in a way they never have been before.
0: Ms. Allred, good to talk to you as always. Thanks so much for the time.
4: Anytime. Thank you, Roy.
0: All the best. Yes. Gloria Thank Allred, you. her book is Fight Back and Win. For 45 years, she's been handling uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and sexual abuse cases. Uh, women are brought against men.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Catherine Swift, former chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, former CEO of the CFIB, WorkingCanadians.ca. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Roy. Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, vice president of Cambria, Canada. LindaLeatherdale.com, independent business journalist. Hi, Linda.
5: Hello, Roy.
0: And Michelle Simpson, the former seatmate to the current prime minister of Canada and former liberal member of parliament, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Rory. Okay, I'm out of here. You're on your own now.
6: <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> What's the
5: topic, Rory? Let's
0: go, girls. <laughs> Let's go. I'll just sit back and You want
5: Bill O'Reilly?
0: Well, I was just speaking with Gloria Allred, and uh, then we took a couple of calls from uh, one from a gentleman who said his wife had been sexually harassed and was almost tossed out of the country because she was a newcomer to Canada and she'd been sexually harassed by a powerful doctor who, I guess, contacted people he knew, and life became difficult for her. And another caller from Hamilton told us that she'd been sexually harassed 10 years ago, went to her boss, explained what was going on, and her boss said, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah.
5: Oh. And, you know, I think we've discussed this on your show before. Roy. We I did, some
0: time ago, I think, with the Gian when Gian case was And up.
5: all three of us have had an, an experience. Yeah, and, and it got I don't know too many voice, women that have I brought my father when I had a complaint. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it's a big organization in downtown Toronto, and uh, business. And I brought my father in because the gentleman was harassing me, and I quit. But guess what? Two years later, two years later, I was offered his job. How about that? Ah, mm. uh, justice,
0: <laughs> justice, sweet
7: justice.
5: Yeah, you know,
0: and I know who that is too. We're not <laughs> yes, going to tell. Do. Uh, Catherine, when you hear women uh, talking about sexual harassment, that's the, from what I know and from what I've been told and what statistically seems to be ev- you know, evidence, um, this happens to more women than it doesn't happen to.
4: Yeah,
7: that's my experience for sure. Um, it, it is not uncommon. Um, thankfully, I mean to be fair, I think there's a lot more awareness of it A lot more, um, obviously, I'm not a big fan of overweening legislation, because I don't think that tends to work, but uh, I think education and, you know, uh, and more awareness of it. And a lot of of the challenges, and and frankly, I think a a legislative solution to, to fall back on as a last resort probably isn't a terrible thing. But when I think back in my younger days, it it really struck me. It was interesting. At first, when you're getting harassed, you think, "Oh, it's because I'm young," you know. And I'm, but then I, I was still relatively young. But I started to get more positions, and maybe I'm sure my colleagues, uh, Linda and Michelle, may may back this up. But as I started to get more senior positions, it stopped. And then I was in the position of seeing women much older uh, getting harassed, but they were in very junior positions, and I concluded, you know what? Youth might be a factor, but I think it's powerlessness that is the real factor here. Exactly. Uh, I agree.
0: Michelle? I
6: agree 100%. Well,
0: there have been stories that have come out of Canada's parliament not so long ago about sexual harassment and sexual abuse, and and it's involved MPs and senators and Maybe other people in the bureaucracy um, is, that, uh, is it is it not uncommon in the in Canada's Parliament because I'm thinking if the nation's legislators engage in this kind of uh, behavior, then that's something that needs to be addressed. Is that something that is I don't know fairly commonplace in, in, in Parliament?:
6: I uh, believe fair it, question it, I believe it's a lot more common than people may think. Uh, There's various reasons for it. No excuses. Various reasons. But, um, yep, I do. And but I chose when I was there. And to Catherine's point, I was older. You know what? Uh, You know, I'd look at these guys and say, I'm too old a cat to get screwed by a kitten. And you know, I just moved on. Uh, but that isn't something that everyone can do, right.
0: Yeah. You know, it's some. It's it, it's amazing to me that some past middle age, pot bellied, beer breathed, occasionally shower, not too often, smelly guy. Yep. Thinks he's going to be at- attractive to or irresistible to. Um, a woman, and is going to prove to her just what a stud he is. What's wrong with these guys?
6: <laughs> well, listen. You know, just I just like to I just right. like to
0: tell them. You know, you're a you're a fat old fart. Uh, yeah. you just go away. You know, you're not. I've
5: even had one come on to me lately, Roy, and said, "Well, you're lucky I'm coming on to you because you're old." <laughs>
6: Oh, Are you really?
5: I am serious. And I'm not going to go there. But it, so it continues to happen, to I'm to me to me me <laughs> so i got to tell you, this time I just laugh. oh my goodness,
7: you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> but yeah. I think, getting to the Parliament issue, my experience, both in, in government and business, is that typically people with so-called position power, they're senior yeah. in some way. Yeah. They're, and, and again, not everybody. I mean, again, not to paint everybody with the same brush, but... A, a significant proportion feel it's kind of their right to, to you know, harass—they they wouldn't think of it as harassing either, and as Linda was alluding to, many would think they're complimenting you. So. No, I, no, it's <laughs> one the power I know. it's And of course, in government, boy, when you're surrounded by the yes people, you're surrounded by when you're a member of parliament or a provincial politician or whatever— there's always going to be a certain portion there that are going to take advantage of that and harass younger and less powerful females.
0: You know, I, I, I worked for a guy when I was in my early twenties. I was sort of reluctant to mention this, but uh, I, I think it's I think it's important that things be talked about and, and people understand. Women understand what they don't need to accept, particularly young women who may not have a lot of experience in the in the, in the work world and find themselves in a competitive environment and wonder, am I going to harm my career, harm my possibilities? If I, if I complain about this, maybe I just say nothing. Well, I worked with a guy and I was sitting and worked for him. I sat in his office periodically and we'd go over issues that had to do with the radio station that I was at at the time. So I was probably about 20, 21 years of age. And a young woman would walk into his office, and maybe it was somebody from uh, another department in the station who was delivering something or somebody who was asking a question. Whatever it was, a young woman would walk into his office. It didn't matter if I was sitting there or anybody else was sitting there. He would say to her, inevitably and invariably, he'd use the same line, take off your clothes and turn out the light.
7: <laughs> oh. Oh.
0: And I remember saying to him, you know, you're, just, you're a pig.
4: And
5: that was probably the guy, I, uh, that probably,
0: was my boss.
5: Probably still is a pig. <laughs>
0: and I, I remember, you know, like I was in my, you know, I was 20, 21 years of age. And I couldn't believe that there was this guy who was probably 40, had a wife and kids. And every, he'd always use the same line. And, and then I remember, I remember looking at the, the faces of the young women he was talking to, and they didn't know what to do. They were just sort of frozen in place. And then he would just sort of laugh and say, yeah, I'll talk to you later, bye. And then they would leave. But they were in this uncomfortable sort of twilight zone of not knowing what to say, embarrassed because if it was a younger woman, they knew me a little better than they knew him because we were the same age. And maybe we hung out, maybe we had beers periodically, and I was a group at the radio station. But this guy said it every single time, and it never came back to haunt him, never. And that, I think, was more uh, a reality of the times than, than anything else. Yeah, I think you yeah, yeah, are getting think, away oh. with that
7: today. And, yeah. and that's at least the good news is there's less tolerance, more awareness. And, and I think the bottom line is a lot of these people, frankly, and I, I remember it well, I, don't, I, I truly believe they don't think they're causing offense. They think they're being cute or they think they're flirting or whatever. But what they don't realize is for those people that are on the receiving end, it's hurtful. It's often, like you said, Roy, confusing, or they're saying, oh, my gosh.
0: What do I do? I feel, I feel
7: so uncomfortable, but I don't want to say anything because I could lose my job. and It's not a nice position. No.
0: No, and I want these guys to know that you're not really you're not admired by other men. Exactly. The majority of men would look at you and say, you know, or say Grow things up. to you that I can't <laughs> say to you on the radio.
7: Yeah, yeah. Grow up, Charlie. <laughs>
0: But it's, uh, but it obviously it's still ongoing. And But there's also the question people ask, well, where's the line between complimenting somebody, for example, and sexually harassing somebody? So if you're walking toward a fellow employee who happens to be a woman and you're the man, and somebody looks, you know, nice, they're well-dressed, they're, you know, you just happen to say as you pass by, boy, you look nice today. And then you just keep going. You don't say anything else. Is that sexual harassment? Because it happened to somebody I know. And that person was reported on. And that the guy who said that, who meant nothing other than to say, you look nice today, he was sent for remedial training.
7: Oh, uh, well, that's that the problem. problem is is th- there is a, gra- there is a, a gray zone, yeah. for sure. And I think, yeah. though, if you're in a given environment with people you know reasonably well, you're going to know if they mean something like, like that comment genuinely and, and it's not, you know, it's, it's actually just an honest compliment or if you're a creep, but of course, when you don't have that knowledge, or some also, women can be hypersensitive. I'm the first to admit people can take umbrage at something that, frankly, was pretty innocent too. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mentioned this on the air a number of years ago, um, and I was I was in Hamilton. I was walking down the street toward uh, City Hall, and it was the middle of the day. And uh, on the sidewalk, coming toward me, was a woman. And it was um, I was walking down the hill toward her. She was walking up and. And I could see that she was getting uncomfortable because you know here was she was by herself and I was by myself. It the middle of the day. We're downtown. and she, I could tell she was uncomfortable because she was pulling her coat more tightly around her. And when we got even with each other, I just to try to, I don't know, ease her apprehensions if she had any, I just said, "Hi." And as I, as I walked by, and all I heard was, "F off creep." Oh, yeah.
7: That's overkill. Yeah, that's that's,
0: that's overkill. But I felt bad. You know, I felt, did I do something wrong? Did I?
7: No.
0: Should I I have kept my mouth shut? Should I have crossed the road? Or You know, because you do ask yourself, what did I just do to somebody? I just said hello. Maybe that's,
2: you know, anyway. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift,
0: Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale. Um, When it comes to who will inherit the mantle of leader of the Conservative Party, may I ask the three of you to just uh, give us a sense of who you like, and I'll start with uh, the former Liberal MP. Who do you think would be the the greatest challenger to uh, Justin Trudeau from the 14 nominees or at least 14 contenders for the Conservative Party leadership, Michelle?
6: Michael Chong or... Andrew Shear, I'm not a fan of Maxime's. They're less than 30 seconds.
0: Okay. Andrew Shear is on the show tomorrow. Okay. At this time. Linda, who do you think would make the best leader for the Conservative Party of Canada?
5: You know what? I'm going to bow out, Roy. I'm going to listen and tune in tomorrow. I listened to Maxine in your interview, and I thought he came across really, really well. Um, But I've got to tell you, people... uh, I'm just what's given on going on in the world. Le Pen, Trump, on and on. Kevin O'Leary, I don't know. I don't know. Everybody knows who he is. So I'm
7: going to just tune in tomorrow. And can I talk to you about this next week? Well, certainly. Yeah.
0: Okay, Catherine. Who do you like so far?
7: Well, I I know a lot of these people personally, as I'm sure Helinda and Michelle do too. And and I like a lot of them as people. You know, I you hate to sort of pick and choose, but frankly, I like Maxime. I know Maxime very well. I I, I co-chaired a couple of committees with him back in the day. Um, He's been consistent for years uh, in terms of his points of view. He's a real libertarian, which is a real freedom-loving person, and personally, I'm I'm all for freedom. I think personal freedom is number one in in every respect uh, for anybody. He's not an interventionist. and uh, so, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't hear him, actually. I wanted to, and I, I just couldn't tune in earlier. But like I say, I, I, I know the guy pretty well, uh, and um, uh, of course he's got his foibles just like everybody does. But I do think, too, one, one thing, too, is that he's worked on his English like mad. I can tell you that for a fact, <laughs> because a few years ago he he would have had trouble. But he, he's clearly worked on it a lot and successfully, and, um, and I tend to think he'd give Trudeau a run for his money. He's, he's, uh, he's quite, uh, he, now he's very bilingual. And, uh, and the other thing is he's a, he's a likable person. He hasn't got a mean edge to him. And I think that didn't serve Harper well. You know, there was a side to Harper that, I mean, he was a, an introvert and, and, and that kind of thing. But I think Maxine genuinely likes people. And in a crowd, he's a natural sort of, you know, handshaker and so on and so forth. And that tends to serve most politicians quite well.
0: Okay, and um, we have a minute, just a minute left. What would you do as far as the migrant issue on the border is concerned? Can you do this one in 10 seconds, Michelle?
6: Build a wall? It's bizarre. <laughs> hey, <Donald. laughs> we get blamed for everything that goes on in the U.S., but they're, they're racing across the border to Canada from the U.S. Anyway... There
0: you go. Okay, build a wall. Linda, what are you going to build?
6: It's
5: getting scary, uh, Roy. just a whole world situation. I can't say build a wall, but I think, you know, we're seeing what's going on in France right now. There's so much concern. Um, you know, and it's a troubled world. Okay. So we should know who's coming into our country. All right, need- and I
0: think Michelle was just... Joking about the law. Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. You know,
0: just, don't, send don't, do. don't send me emails. Don't send me emails. Five seconds, Catherine.
7: What, what you don't do if you're Prime Minister is say, come come one, come all. doesn't matter. We welcome you all. Because, frankly, I don't blame these people for jumping the border. Yeah. They, were, they yeah. were told that was okay. Yep,
0: yeah. that's the point I was making last weekend, and people were disagreeing with me.
7: No. Oh,
6: no, really you're right. right.
0: I want to read you, as just before you depart, I want to read you an email from Ann. Good show as usual. Very much respect the beauties on your show and you as well. You're a good man.
5: You are you good
7: another
0: Roy? <laughs> I was just I'm fishing for a compliment from you. <laughs>
7: the beast is a great man. <laughs> well, clearly that's a very astute listener. I'd say so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. All. Talk Roy. to you next Saturday.
2: The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.